So we're going to be talking right now about the third in our series of five topics on brain health. So in our first meeting together, we spoke about infectious diseases, how lifestyle choices can help decrease your risk of infectious illness. Then what did we speak about yesterday? Any, anyone remember? Yes, hemorrheology, blood fluidity and longevity and quality of life, how those things can be enhanced. And now we're speaking about the brain health revolution. Well, it truly was a strange place for a church. There were no stained glass windows. There were no bricks in this church. It was not a building that looked anything like this or any of the places where you meet. But if a church is a place where the gospel is presented, there was perhaps no more powerful church any time in the history of this planet. But it did not look at all like a church. I'm referring, of course, to Golgotha's Hill, where as Jesus was being crucified, he spoke some of the most powerful words ever spoken. Very little said from the cross, but life-changing messages. And Jesus' example, dying, not just his example, but his actually death on our behalf. The words of Jesus are recorded in the Gospels, things that actually have some profound social connections. We've been speaking about social health and how that has a role in our physical health. It's interesting as Jesus was on the cross, much of what he spoke really was focused on socially healing. Think about it. His words, Father, forgive them. Forgiveness, a foundational concept as far as social relations and social health. What about speaking to that thief on the cross, saying that you will be with me in paradise, assuring him and us by extension that he has a place for each one of us in his kingdom. And then his words to John, the disciple John, looking at John and his mother at the cross, pointing to his own mother, entrusting her care to the disciple John. So these amazing words of social healing come from the cross. But it's interesting to me, as we've been giving you some insights from my series, Healing Insights from the Gospel of Mark, that not one of these statements is found in Mark's gospel, which I've been trying to have you believe is a relational gospel, is very concerned about relationships. And the question might be, well, why would none of this, why would none of this find its way into Mark's gospel? What was Mark concerned about when he was describing what Jesus experienced at the cross? What was Mark's emphasis? Actually, it's quite interesting what Mark's emphasis was. Mark's emphasis at the cross was on the cost of healing. And I think it's actually an important topic that we discuss as we're here together because we often think about health just being something that we have a choice about. And we talked a little bit about this yesterday. There is a cost for healing. And uh, ultimately, all of us, you could say, should have died long ago because of sin, the whole human race should have, but the cost of healing is seen there at the cross. And so the only words that you hear Jesus speaking in Mark's gospel are very limited. This one here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does this say about what Jesus was experiencing at the cross? That's right. He was experiencing separation from the Father. And, you know, for us to feel disconnected from God is one thing. But for Jesus, who had been one with the Father from eternity, to feel the weight of sin and the separation that that entailed, we have no comprehension of what Jesus was experiencing at the cross. And it's interesting that Mark, twice in his gospel, made reference to the cross when it related to other people. We looked at this yesterday in dealing with the rich young ruler. Jesus asked him to take up his cross. And after Peter made his great confession, Jesus there again spoke of believers taking up our own crosses and following him. 
Well, what's so interesting to me about all of this is many of you realize, and we touched on this briefly in my first presentation, the Gospel of Mark is often referred to as the Gospel of Peter. Peter and Mark were closely aligned, and in fact, Peter called Mark his own son in the faith. And so many believe that as Mark was writing his gospel, he was especially giving us an insight into what Peter experienced during his walk, those three and a half years with Jesus. But it's so interesting to me because Peter and Mark both struggled with the same problem. Remember, Mark bailed on the missionary team of Paul and Barnabas during their first missionary journey. And just as Peter betrayed his Lord, you could say Mark shirked his responsibilities as well. And they really, if you will, in a spiritual sense, demonstrated a lack of self-denial. And I ask the question, because we're speaking about health topics and we're looking at some of these spiritual connections Does this concept of self-denial and lack of it, does it speak especially to our culture today? I think it really does. So in Mark, there's no question that Jesus is dying as the great sacrifice. He is that which all the scriptures pointed to. He is the Redeemer. He is the Lamb of God. But the emphasis, as Mark describes Calvary, is not on Jesus' ministry. It's on Jesus' example and what Jesus is experiencing at the cross. And uh, I would like to say to you from the vantage point of Mark, it makes perfect sense to me because Mark and Peter needed that example of Jesus. They needed that example of self-denial, of taking up the cross. Um, They... They needed to see that. And so as Mark is writing his gospel, I think he's infusing it with that perspective that was so important for him. And so this second bullet point here, it's not just about what God does for us. It also reveals what we must do for ourselves in cooperation with God. I think there are those implications at the cross. And we can't do anything, of course, unless we're inspired and empowered by him. So what was Mark's emphasis there at the cross? We said it was on the cost of healing, but there's another glimpse that we get right here. Let's look at it from Mark 15, verses 34 through 37. It says, At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it said that some, when they heard Jesus' words, thought he was calling for who? Elias or Elijah, and uh, others, you can see as they see him suffering there, it says, one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar. Other translations say wine vinegar. It was a fermented beverage. They put it on a reed and they give it to Jesus to drink, saying, let alone, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cries with a loud voice and gives up the ghost. Earlier in that very same chapter, we read about Jesus being offered a drugging potion earlier. It says when they brought him to that place called Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull, they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, and he received it not. So Jesus, there on the cross, we see his suffering, we see him dying, we see him feeling forsaken of the Father, But we also see him giving us, I believe, an example of self-denial. I mean, think about it. If anyone had an excuse to take a drug to numb his pain, who would it have been? Jesus. And he refused. Now, I'm not, uh, some of you are dealing with serious conditions, and the best you know is to take some kind of numbing medication. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm simply saying it's interesting to me that Jesus, even though his life is about to end, felt it important to follow a specific health principle. Do you know this is a health principle? God doesn't want us to cloud our minds. Now, some of you might say the pain is so bad that my mind is only clear when I take something for the pain. And, um, you know, and, and I give you perfect liberty between you and the Holy Spirit to decide how you deal 
with, with pain issues in your life, okay? So I'm not trying to, to dictate which direction you go. But I, I think Jesus' example engages us. And it engages us because, as we said, I think that health testimony is needed by our culture today more than ever. People don't want to speak about self-denial. They want to speak about only half of the message of temperance. Do you all know what the whole message of temperance is? The whole message of temperance is moderation in things that are good. Now, everyone likes that one. Everyone likes moderation. All my patients tell me about it. When I talk with them about something being harmful, they say, but Dr. DeRose, I just do it a little bit. Or they say, I've really cut down, Dr. DeRose. But they don't like the second part of the temperance message. And the second part of the temperance message is total avoidance of things that are harmful. So those are the two arms of the temperance message. And Jesus, I believe, is illustrating that from the cross. Here's how it was put in the book Desire of Ages. To those who suffered death by the cross, it was permitted to give a stupefying potion to deaden the sense of pain. This was offered to Jesus, but when he had tasted it, he did what? He refused it. He would receive nothing that would becloud or could becloud his mind. His faith must keep fast hold upon God. This was his only strength. To becloud his senses would give Satan an advantage. Now think about it. This is Jesus who had this perfect walk with the Father. If he wouldn't allow something to becloud his senses, how careful should I be? Well, I've been promising you, if you've been here the last couple days, that we would spend some time with alcohol. And this is a perfect place to do it. I've been trying to mingle in with our health presentations. Some of the material, because some of you were talking with me about it just yesterday, about what is this series on healing insights from the Gospel of Mark. What we have is we have eight half-hour presentations that are designed for you to use in your home or your churches. If you have people that are coming to you for health programs, you know, how do you engage those people on spiritual topics? And so this is what we do. We go through a number of these gospel illustrations and we look at alcohol in the context of Jesus' example on the cross. And so what about alcohol as a beverage? What would you say the average person in America thinks when it comes to alcohol and health? What would you say they would likely tell you? Yeah, it's good in moderation. Well, let's look at that popular sentiment and see if the best researchers are saying we should be using alcohol in moderation. Here's actually the facts. First of all, beverage alcohol is associated with many of America's leading conditions, leading health problems from obesity to cancer to high blood pressure. Very direct linkages. By the way, if you're not aware of it, when I used to teach college nutrition classes, I would remind my students that alcohol, gram for gram, has about twice as many calories as pure sugar. Alcohol has seven calories per gram, sugar four. Okay? So it is a constant. And you say, well, I only drink light beer, Dr. DeRose. And, uh, you know, I don't want to get so many calories. Alcohol is a caloric bombshell, but it's worse than that. Years ago, before I ever heard of Seventh-day Adventists, I was actually working in a restaurant. And in that restaurant, uh, like most fine restaurants, what do you think they offered people when they first came into the restaurant? Yes, they offered them, you know, an, a beverage. What, what do you want to drink? And they would bring their special wines by and let them know what they, they had and maybe even offer them, a, you know, a, a, an opportunity to taste some of the wines. Now, what was this accomplishing? Yes, first of all, alcohol had the biggest profit margin in the restaurant. Yes? Ah, ah, you put it all together, haven't you? Yes. It, what happens is when you just take a little bit of alcohol, it blunts your frontal lobe. And so when the server would come by at the end of the meal and said, would you like dessert? And uh, the 500-pound patron would say, no, I, I, really, I really shouldn't. And she said, did I mention we have a special three for the price of two sale? Oh, it's my lucky day. I'll take it. Um, you know, so the, the, the alcoholic beverage blunts those finer discriminating capacities. Now, by the way, 
Some of you realize that I live in California, and I also revealed yesterday we didn't drive here. How do you think we came to Michigan? We actually flew, that's right. And uh, I'm quite confident, maybe my confidence is misplaced, but I'm quite confident the blood alcohol level of the pilot flying the plane was zero. Some of you are saying hopefully. <laughs> Why do we not tolerate any alcohol in a pilot's bloodstream? Impaired judgment. Well, why do we care? I mean, we let people drive with alcohol in their blood as long as it's under a certain legal limit. Why don't we just say, you know, if it's good enough for people driving cars, it's good enough for pilots. Why do we not tolerate that in a pilot? Too many lives depending on it, okay? So if it's just your life driving a car, maybe you'll hit someone else, but it's not 150 people. So does that make sense to you? Well, how about us? How about our lives? How about our ministry? Can we afford to blunt our mental capacities. We're speaking about brain health. And if you're not already realizing it, one of the things we have to talk about when we talk about brain health is alcoholic beverages in our culture. No, and I'll be honest with you, I've been at scientific meetings where people have actually, this is unusual in a scientific meeting, but I was some years ago in a major professional meeting where they were debating whether moderation in alcohol was good or bad. And there were scientific experts there who are looking broadly at the medical research literature, and they said moderate alcohol is bad, it's not good for health. And uh, there were a couple of other, quote, experts who were paid by the alcohol industry who were actually saying it was good for you. And we'll look at that in a few minutes. But the point is, alcohol, if you look at the associations, it's a loser from a public health standpoint. Now, here's what's really interesting. And, and most of the alcohol industry, in fact, all of them, to my knowledge, will not tell you this point number two. Because what they want you to hear is there's research out there showing that moderate drinking decreases your risk of heart disease. How many of you have heard of this? Now the question is, is it true or false? It's not false. It's not false. It is true for most Americans. Yes, that is, that is the, uh, the insightful response, and I'll repeat it because some of you didn't hear it. If you're on a lousy lifestyle, there is actual evidence that moderate drinking lowers your risk of heart disease. Yes, but if you're on a healthy lifestyle, we know this not just from Adventist studies among Adventists, we know it from the Oxford Vegetarian Study, for example. When they looked at vegetarians in Europe, they found that they got absolutely no heart benefit from moderate drinking. And they got all the problems that went along with it. So if someone tells you that they're drinking for their heart, they're just drinking in moderation, your natural response to be, should be, I'm so sorry to hear you're on such a terrible lifestyle. Now, I'm not saying you necessarily <laughs> would say that to them. But it's really true. And, and you'd say, well, why would this be? Why would it be? I mean, stop and think about it. It's not, it's not a, a big stretch. We talked yesterday a little bit about phytochemicals, those powerhouses that God has put in plant foods. And by the way, just so you know where we're going, tomorrow we're speaking about diabetes, and on Friday we're speaking about high blood pressure. And if you don't have high blood pressure now, statistically, you are likely to develop it. The majority of us will have high blood pressure before we die unless we uh, follow uh, much better health habits than the average American and had much better genes. Some of you are on a wonderful lifestyle. You still have high blood pressure. And we'll talk some about why that is, some fascinating research on the causes of high blood pressure that we'll get into Friday by God's grace. Quick question. Okay, we're coming there. We're coming there. You're, you're trying to keep me focused. Don't You say, Dr. DeRose, don't tell us what's coming up. Just keep on topic. And I appreciate that. So that's what we're going to do. So think about it. Think about, we're talking about phytochemicals. And the reason I was telling you about what's coming up is we're going to find those same phytochemicals in plant foods. Some of you can't be here Friday. So I got to tell, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I've just got to digress for a minute. You're going to let me do that? Okay. Okay. If you're not here Friday, one of the most exciting things that we know today about high blood pressure is the creator has put into plant foods, many plant foods they've now discovered, have ACE inhibitory compounds. These are compounds that, are, that have been identified and put into drugs to lower blood pressure. But God has put them in judicious amounts in the whole plant foods that we eat. 
And so when you're eating these things, you're actually taking, in limited doses, high blood pressure lowering compounds that are protecting you or decreasing your risk of high blood pressure. So some of you would say, well, this is really frustrating, Dr. Rose. I'm sure I'm not going to come Friday because I have a high blood pressure and I'm a total vegetarian. I'm a vegan. I'm, a, I'm on a total plant-based diet, whatever you want to call it. And I'm not going to come because I'm still taking blood pressure medicine. You know, I have seen patients come into my office. I think the record is nine medications, all of which lower blood pressure. Okay. That was before I started seeing them, you understand. Okay, nine medications. There's all kinds of drugs out there. And what I'm trying to tell you is these phytochemicals are in the plants. Now think about it. Where does wine come from? It comes from grapes. Where does beer come from? Yeah, grain like barley and, and hops and, and herb. Where does uh, sake, the uh, Japanese uh, elk, comes from rice, right? Where does whiskey come from? can come from grain. I mean, vodka. Potatoes in Russia, they tell me, they make in a vodka. Okay, you're following along. Every alcoholic beverage comes from where? It comes from plants. So, now the more you distill it, the le probably the less phytochemicals you're getting. But if you're taking something like wine, you're getting lots of the natural phytochemicals the Lord put in there. And, you know, most people are on a phytochemically depleted diet. They're, I mean, it's shocking. I mean, you look at statistics. The average American doesn't even come close to eating five servings a day of fruits and vegetables. I mean, you probably just had that at lunch. I had it at breakfast. And, you know, someone's doing good. Some Americans think they did good because they had a glass of orange juice with their, you know, bacon and eggs for breakfast. Okay, and that was a good breakfast. Okay, so here's the point. You get no benefit from moderate drinking if you're on a good lifestyle. And last, the one that no one talks about. Well, I shouldn't say no one, but very rarely do I hear anyone in the public health community talking about the profound mental and moral effects of alcohol. You know, this is one of the contributions that we as Seventh-day Adventists have to me. You know, everyone's so concerned, well, how long are you going to live and, you know, quality of life? But they don't think about the mental and moral effects. And if you realize, I mean, life quality is largely tied to these things, you know? You know how many people's lives are miserable because of bad social relations? And this is one of the things that's fueling it. Well, here's um, some data looking at some of the harms of alcoholic beverages. This is a study published a few years back in the British Medical Journal. This is looking at one of the largest data sets in the world. It's from something called EPIC, the European Perspective Investigation into Cancer and Nutrition, a multi-country study in Europe. And uh, what they found in this particular study, these are some of the quotes from the authors and others that commented on this. We looked at this uh, particular quote the other day. The cancer risk increases with every drink so that even moderate amounts of alcohol, such as a small drink each day, increases the risk of these cancers. They're talking about a number of cancers that are linked to alcoholic beverages. By the way, one of the leading cancers linked to alcohol is guess what? Pancreatic. Pancreatic. I mean, there's a number there. But one of the, the leading cancer killer that has a significant association with alcohol is breast cancer in women. Breast cancer in women. Even though light to moderate alcohol, very carefully worded, listen to this, and you'll see they're actually saying the same thing I've been trying to explain to you. Even though light to moderate alcohol consumption might decrease the risk of cardiovascular disease and mortality, the net effect is harmful. So who might it decrease the risk of either getting heart disease or dying from heart disease? Who might benefit? That's right, those who live unhealthfully. But the net effect, you look at the cumulative effect of alcohol and it enhances the likelihood that you're going to die sooner and that you're going to die from cancer. Here's what these experts then recommended. Alcohol consumption should not be recommended to prevent cardiovascular disease or all-cause mortality. They're saying, forget it. I mean, if someone wants to drink in America, they have a right to do it, right? That's the way our country has decided to go on this topic. And um, you can either like or, or not like the fact that we're legalizing more and more drugs in our country. But the point is, they have the freedom to do that. But please, I tell my patients, please don't deceive yourself into thinking you're doing this for your health. Because okay? it's really not. Well, 
A study that had similar findings, there's multiple studies out there linking alcohol to cancer risk. These now are from National Institutes of Health, one of our divisions of the NIH is the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. Here's what these researchers said. From a standpoint of cancer risk, the message of this report, what? Could not be clearer. There is no level of alcohol that can be considered safe. I mean, is that clear or is it clear? And it's interesting, these researchers are where? What division are they with? They're with the division that's concerned with heart disease prevention. They didn't say, well, you know, we're interested in heart prevention, so, you know, some people should be drinking moderately. No, they said there is no level of alcohol that can be considered safe. Well, we're talking about brain health, and I think you see how we're transitioning. Usually we go the other way. Usually I'm talking with people on just health topics and in a lay setting, and then we'll try to interest them in some of the Bible topics and invite them to a series on Mark. Or um, maybe we'll talk about our Ancient Secrets Modern Health mini-series where we transition people from health topics to, to biblical topics. We've kind of flipped that and giving you a kind of a feel for some of the things we talk about in the biblical arena first as now we come to talking about this very important compound that I promised those of you who were here yesterday, we would talk about BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And uh, what's in a name? If you just break down a name, you can uh, learn a lot. So this compound is brain-derived. What does that mean? That's right. Your brain makes this compound. Neurotrophic. What does that refer to? Neuro refers to nerves or brain cells. What does the term trophic refer to? Do any of you know? Well, atrophy would be shrinkage or reversal of growth or lack of growth. What would trophic be? Trophic is growth. So trophic is growth. Atrophy, like if something atrophies, that's a, a loss of growth or an absence of growth or a reversal of growth. That means without growth, atrophy. So trophic is growth. So a neurotrophic compound is a compound that actually feeds your brain cells and, and neurons and helps them grow. So this is made by the brain, this neurotrophic factor, and it's a powerful compound. It's got all kinds of benefits. The literature shows us if you can boost your BDNF levels, you can decrease your risk of Alzheimer's disease. And we'll talk about that in some, some detail this afternoon. You can decrease your risk of Parkinson's disease, which is a, a movement disorder that also can affect uh, mental clarity as well. It can decrease your risk of ischemic stroke. Now, for those of you that uh, don't banter about these uh, medical terms, ischemic stroke is stroke caused by blockage in blood vessels. This is in contrast to hemorrhagic stroke or bleeding stroke where a blood vessel ruptures. So you can have a stroke from blockage in a blood vessel. We call that either ischemic or thrombotic stroke caused from a clot. Or you can have hemorrhagic bleeding stroke. BDNF actually prevents this ischemic stroke, which is probably the major cause of stroke that we see. There's a lot of hemorrhagic stroke too, but ischemic stroke, probably the major cause of stroke that most of you have seen in your experience. And then even depression, your likelihood of becoming depressed is decreased if you've got higher levels of what? BDNF. I'm glad some of you are tracking. Yesterday, the main answer to my questions was what? Hemorrheology, because we were talking about blood fluidity and how lifestyle can, uh, can help our blood flow better and decrease our risk of a host of diseases. Now we're talking about BDNF and how this can help us with a host of problems. Now it's got some other benefits as well. BDNF has actually been shown to improve cognitive function. So if you feel you're kind of losing a little bit of that mental edge, what should you be interested in improving? BDNF, that's right. And so we're going to talk about things you can do to improve BDNF levels. If you're dealing with people who have drug abuse problems, they've actually shown that higher levels of BDNF can either help prevent or treat alcohol dependency. And look at this. It has appetite suppressant effects. So if you struggle with weight control issues, you should be interested in what? BDNF. BDNF. Well, you guys are right on track here. So how do you do it? Well, we're not dependent on drug companies optimizing levels of this compound. 
we actually can do some natural things that actually help to optimize this. We're going to look at uh, four things together. We've already touched on one. That's the alcohol avoidance. We'll give you a little bit more information on that in a minute. But we're going to talk about the concept of dietary restriction. And uh, then we'll talk about regular physical exercise, then environmental enrichment and stimulation. So let's look at these uh, four literature-based ways to improve BDNF. And uh, we are actually going to start with the last one because we were just talking about alcohol. So let's just look at that a little bit. So alcohol actually impacts BDNF as well as a number of other neurotrophins. There's other brain growth factors and much of that impact seems to be undesirable. Some years ago, there was a study where they looked at moderate drinkers over time. I actually think the study was done in Michigan. I didn't, uh, didn't try to pull that up before this talk. And uh, they found that people, long after the alcohol was out of their system, those who were social drinkers had impaired cognitive performance as compared to those who were non-drinkers. And by the way, I should mention one thing. This is very, very uh, difficult in the research literature. You're aware that many people who are non-drinkers had problems with alcohol in their past. So when you hear about a study that's comparing drinkers with non-drinkers, in our culture, many of the non-drinkers are people that had significant alcohol exposure in their history, and now they're in recovery. They're often alcoholics, okay? So just, just kind of keep that in mind. So always be careful when you hear about some of this research. If they say, well, the people, they looked at this study, and people that were avoiding alcohol had more cancer than those that were drinking. Well, that's not what all the literature shows. But if you look at a population that has a lot of people who are alcoholics in recovery and not drinking, that's going to skew the data. Do you see? So you always have to ask, when you, when you hear about research, always ask who's being studied. Always ask that question. Alcohol and neurotrophin levels. In animal models, when they actually give animals, and you could say this is cruel, you could say, Dr. DeRose, don't present this if you're giving a talk at PETA. Um, but uh, chronic alcohol exposure really upsets many of these trophic factors in the brain. Very interesting research. Uh, this uh, particular nerve growth factor, uh, NGF, is depressed by alcohol. And BDNF is particularly depressed when you are exposed to alcohol in a region called the hippocampus. The hippocampus is a key part of your brain that is needed for memory. So if uh, you're struggling with memory challenges, and you're saying, well, I think it's because I'm not sleeping well at night, and I've heard that just a little bit of alcohol before you go to bed will help you sleep. By the way, does alcohol help people sleep? Well, you, should, you shouldn't be so assertive. Alcohol is a depressant. Yes, it does help people sleep. Yes, it does. It does, actually. But you're right. It doesn't help them get better quality sleep because alcohol inter, uh, interferes with normal sleep architecture, we call it. So you don't get optimal restorative sleep if you're sleeping the drug sleep of, uh, of alcohol. So someone might say, well, it's the only way I can relax and go to sleep at night. It may be, but there are better stress management techniques than using alcohol before you go to bed. Now, I know some of you are saying, Dr. DeRose, why are you telling all this to us? Uh, we don't have some of these problems that you're dealing with. Well, remember, one of the reasons I'm here, and I tried to allude to this our first day together, it's both to equip you to reinforce some of the things that maybe you already know or maybe some things that you've been learning. So it's for you personally, but it's also for you in ministry. I know many of you are involved in health ministry. And in fact, on good biblical grounds, we mentioned this earlier when we were together, Jesus never called, never commissioned his followers to just preach and teach. What was included in every commissioning service, whether it was sending out the 12, the 70, or the Great Commission, especially as it's recorded in Mark's Gospel. What was included? Healing. Okay? So we as a church were entrusted with Jesus' ministry, and part of that ministry is to carry on, carry on the healing ministry of Jesus in our communities. And uh, not everyone is called to be a health professional. Not everyone is called to give health lectures in their church. But you definitely can live the health principles and share them with others, okay? Well, so avoid alcohol if you're serious about maintaining a healthy lifestyle. We already talked about this, how good practices can be undermined by just a little bit of alcohol. I could tell you stories about patients of mine who were at parties. I think of a guy, might as well not tell you that I could tell you. Let me tell you a true story. 
This fellow had uh, been a smoker. He stopped smoking for, I think it was several years. And then he was at a party having a little bit of alcohol. And uh, when he was under the influence of alcohol, just a little bit, he wasn't drunk, he wasn't stumbling around, someone offered him a cigarette. That's right. And in his uh, impaired mental state, he said, well, I can smoke. I'm not a smoker anymore. And what do you think happened? That's right. He had that cigarette, and he was right back in the throes of tobacco. And he knew better, but what? The alcohol blunted his judgment. I could tell you about health professionals who have seen me. Uh, other health professionals, and uh, have been drinking a little bit and have been involved in um, indiscretions that have exposed them to uh, the potential of serious sexually transmitted diseases, alcohol involved. So if you want to limit the likelihood of falling into moral lapses, and we can tell people in our communities that, there are people who are actually concerned about avoiding these things. So stay away from alcohol if you want to optimize BDNF, but it's got all kinds of other brain health benefits. Let's continue, though, giving you some more things you can do to improve BDNF levels. And the next one is dietary restriction, okay? How many of you uh, would look at this and say, this looks like a good breakfast? Okay. Um, no, really, we don't want you to uh, restrict your breakfast. This is just to make a point. We're talking, though, about caloric restriction. Now, I, I wish I could have been at uh, Dr. Sorky's uh, meeting earlier today. Some of you get to that? Yeah. We were speaking about fasting. Now, I, I'm assuming, was he speaking mainly about the spiritual benefits of fasting? He touched on some of the health benefits. I find it especially fascinating that just about every culture in the world values fasting. You know, fasting is part of traditions, and you know, some of you know I do a lot of work with Native Americans. Uh, in fact, one of you came up to me uh, earlier before the meeting, and you're, you're with Strong Tower Radio. You air our radio show called American Indian Living. It's a show that I host on a weekly basis. So I work a lot with Native Americans. For many years, we lived in Oklahoma. And... Um, it's very interesting. They have traditions where fasting is, and you look, Islam, Ramadan, right? Okay, A Christian, Jewish. Why is it? Why is it that fasting seems to cut across cultural lines? Why is it valued? And I would suggest to you it has not only spiritual benefits, but physical benefits as well. And that's what we're finding in the research literature. In fact, it's very interesting, both decreasing caloric intake in general and periodic fasting consistently contribute to higher levels of BDNF. So if you want to raise levels of BDF in your brain, you need to be eating less. Now, I have to be careful because there's always some conscientious people in meetings like this who weigh 100 pounds and are, you know, 5 foot 10 and are saying, I knew it, Dr. DeRose, what a, I'm so thankful you affirm that I'm overeating. Now, listen, if you're... Um, if you're significantly below your ideal weight, uh, you have to be careful. I'm not saying you can't fast. By the way, um, I don't know if Dr. Sorky pointed this out, but some of the best balanced material on fasting is found in a book that someone gave to me as a young Seventh-day Adventist. Now remember, I, a young Seventh-day Adventist, I was a young adult at the time. But they gave me a book that I later learned should never have been written, at least in some people's estimation. Do you know what that book was? Yes, Councils on Diet and Foods. Um, I actually think it was good that the book was written, just for the record. But um, in that book, there's a whole section on fasting, very balanced section. And uh, she speaks about how total avoidance from food is not necessary. Um, some of you, especially if you're very thin, have high metabolisms, are on certain medications, you may not be able to fast completely. That doesn't make you less spiritual and doesn't mean you can't fast. It just has to be done intelligently. But periodic fasting, total avoidance of calories, as well as decreased caloric intake, all of those can boost levels of BDNF. Why is this? Well, it comes back to a concept that many people miss. And some of you are already gathering. I like these trick questions, these questions that don't have a yes or no answer, even when I ask them as if they're a yes or no question. So um, here's the question for you, since I've already you know, clued you all in. Is stress good for you or is it bad for you? Okay, good, good. I, I hear you all equivocating, which is what I wanted you to do. Moderate, moderate or modest levels of stress are actually good. 
Excessive levels of stress are harmful. By the way, this is true in the spiritual realm as well as in the physical realm, as well as in the mental realm, okay? Now, most of us think, well, I, listen, when I find that perfect church, I know some of you are in the perfect church already, but others of you say, well, you know, I don't always go to church because I can watch, you know, better preaching on 3AVN or Hope Channel or whatever channel you're watching or pull out the DVDs. There is something powerful that happens in community. You know, this is one of the themes we've been talking about. And you cannot get it from even the most wonderful sermon that you watch at home. Now you say, but the people are so much nicer on television. They never yell at me. They don't judge me. Uh, they don't uh, exclude me. Uh, they don't smell bad. But modest stress is good. And I would suggest to you, we talk about this some in some of my presentations. We're not going to go into too much of it here. But um, I even think that part of the reason God brings us into community in the church is to stress us some. Now, you can think about that. And if you're in a perfect church, maybe the Lord is saying you're supposed to start, you know, another church somewhere. Um, and if you live in a place that doesn't have a perfect church, that's all the more reason why you need to be there. Just some things for you to think about. Anyway, when it comes to caloric restriction, here's how it works. If you restrict the brain calorically, it's stressing the brain. And the brain under that stress ramps up levels of BDNF. By the way, it's the same reason people go to the health club. It's the same reason, even though it was pouring rain, I was out there running this morning. Some of you, if I get sick tomorrow, you'll say, well, come on, what a crazy guy I was out there running in the rain. But um, I find that I just perform better by stressing my body. And uh, judiciously, I, I, you know, I didn't get chilled. And uh, it's the same with your brain. You're not supposed to fast for 40 days. Jesus did that for us, okay? You have a question about this? Oh, wow. Have you heard this lecture? Did you already get the, the Brain Health Revolution DVD and you're trying to ask me leading questions? Oh, okay. Well, we'll get there. Don't worry. Okay. So um, how much do you need to cut back? Well, in, in the research, uh, cutting calories back as little as 30% significantly boosts BDNF levels. Now, I find this figure especially interesting, but we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that figure in a moment. Um, if you know anything about longevity research, if you look at studies of longevity, one of the most consistent ways to live longer or to extend an animal's lifespan is to feed it less. For example, if you feed a mouse 20% less calories than it would habitually choose, how much longer will it live? Do any of you know? That's right, about 20% longer. If you cut its calories back 30%, how much longer will it live? About 30%. If you cut its calories back 99%, how much longer will it live? <laughs> no, it will die from starvation. Yeah, that's right. So there is a point of diminishing returns. But it's very interesting. In this world of sin, it's almost as if our bodies, on average, can process a certain number of calories and then we die. So some of you are sitting here thinking, well, I'm so glad I'm not like my sister. You know, she just looks at food and she gains weight. But I can eat anything I want and I don't have a weight problem. Well, that may not all be all that good. And some of you that have weight problems, instead of thinking that that's a terrible curse that you have, actually it may be a blessing in disguise because you're being very careful with how much you eat. And in fact, you have better BDNF levels than those others who are judging you in the church. So you should have compassion on them. Come on, they're not functioning cognitively as well if they're being critical of your weight. Do you understand? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm saying that kind of tongue-in-cheek, but there is some truth in it. Here's the point. Dietary restriction all, improves all kinds of things, including, there it is, hemorrheology. And I don't, do, do they have the uh, DVD display in back again today, or are they trying to help people get more exercise? Okay. So I know each uh, lecture, they have some of the DVDs back there. I didn't see Longevity Plus uh, back there yesterday, but they're all at the ABC. And if you're wondering, all my DVDs are on half price when we're, uh, when we're here. Okay, 
Caloric restriction decreases inflammation. Now, these terms down here may be strange esoteric terms, tumor necrosis factor, alpha, and interleukin-6. But if any of you watch commercial television at all, you've heard these in the fine print because uh, some of the most powerful immune-suppressing drugs today work on these compounds. So if you have rheumatoid arthritis and you're taking one of these biological uh, agents, spending, if you're paying for it out of pocket, thousands of dollars a month, you're likely taking a drug that's suppressing something like tumor necrosis factor alpha or interleukin-6. But isn't it interesting, without taking any powerful drugs, by judicious fasting and caloric restriction, you can decrease inflammation and decrease levels of these compounds. We've known this for years. Many of us that have worked in uh, settings where we have done, and I've done this in some places, uh, medically supervised fasts, I've seen people with uh, autoimmune diseases, with their markers of inflammation, like uh, for those of you that are health professionals, sedimentation rate dramatically dropping in a very short time when we put them on a fasting regimen. Well, the question was about what kind of foods, cutting back on what? This is some great research from uh, experts in New York City. Uh, Mount Sinai School of Medicine uh, no longer exists. I, I was uh, informed, one of my radio guests was from Mount Sinai. She said it's now the Icon School of Medicine. I guess Carl Icahn was donated a large amount of money there. So now it's uh, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai or something like that. Anyway, these, uh, this research group has done a lot of work with Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative conditions. And here's what they said. They said it's now widely accepted that if the onset of the disease, Alzheimer's disease, could be delayed by even five years, the incidence, that means new cases, could be cut in half. Now, how would that happen? What are they talking about? We talked about this yesterday, and that is some of us have gotten dealt a bad genetic hand. To be honest with you, all of us have, because it's from sin. But some of those genetics may predispose us to weight issues. Others of us might be predisposed to diabetes, like many of my Native American friends, may predispose us to high blood pressure. And we'll talk more about high blood pressure Friday, diabetes tomorrow. But here's the interesting thing. When we look at these genetic factors, you can modulate the genetics. We call it epigenetics. By how you live can influence how those genes express themselves. What these researchers are saying, Alzheimer's disease typically comes when in a person's life? Late in life. I had a grandmother, lived to her early 90s. She developed Alzheimer's in her late 80s. If she could have delayed the onset of Alzheimer's by five years, she would have died before Alzheimer's ever came knocking on her door. Do you see the point? And so you may not be able to totally avoid something, but you could stave it off. Or if maybe you just get a little bit of, you know, a little bit of cognitive decline when you're 110, you see? That would be better than having, you know, if you're going to live to 111, you'd rather stave that off to 110, wouldn't you, than have it at 90? Okay? That way you could write all those books and, you know, do Bible studies, whatever you're doing, you know, between 90 and 110, you know, keep working the second job. I don't know what, what, what you'd be doing at that age. But the point is, push things off in the future by lifestyle. These are secular researchers. And what are they saying we should do? Both clinical and epidemiologic evidence suggests that modification of lifestyle factors such as nutrition may prove crucial to Alzheimer's disease management given the mounting experimental evidence suggesting that brain cells are remarkably responsive to what somebody's doing. So they're saying how we live affects whether or not and when we develop dementia. And again, we can't point fingers. You say, well, I was always wondering why Pastor Jones got dementia when he was 65. I knew he was probably, you know, when no one was looking, was probably eating pork. Well, no, you can't, you can't draw that conclusion. Okay, because if he hadn't been following that healthy lifestyle, he may have had Alzheimer's at 45. Do you see what I'm saying? What did they find? They found that the worst, just to kind of summarize this, you can read all the words if you want. The worst thing as far as Alzheimer's disease seemed to be saturated fat. Where do you get saturated fat from? 
It's primarily animal products. And you say, we're here in the Great Lakes. I mean, I grew up in Illinois, not far from Wisconsin. So when I grew up, I was being told that there was a health food. I actually thought I was eating a health food when I was eating things like ice cream and pizza. No, really, I'm telling you the truth, okay? I didn't know Seventh-day Adventists. And, uh, and so I'm eating my cheese pizza and think, but what was I eating? Do you realize what I was eating? I was eating lots of saturated fat, and it may yet catch up with me, okay? But the point is, this is especially bad for neurodegeneration. So you say, Dr. DeRose, I don't want to get all fanatical. You know, I don't want to be like some of those people that are vegans. They are some of the worst people to deal with in the church. You know, I hate to tell you the truth, but some of them are. Some of them are. When I was pastoring, I can remember some of my... uh, Brothers in ministry coming to me and saying, Dr. DeRose, the health message has torn apart our church. This is not the health message, okay? In fact, Ellen White herself said that people that are health reformers should be the kindest, the most loving, the most gracious people. So, uh, by the way, health, health reform doesn't just talk about what's on your plate. It's how you treat one another. It's a huge part of it. So please, if you're like one church that I was in once, I mean, this was sad. Um, They told me, they actually had me come and do a health series there. And it took a lot of courage for the pastor to invite me to come because he said that there was a, um, you know, we're we're trying to keep this all very nebulous. It was very far from here in Michigan. And, uh, And they said the health leader in the church, whenever this person would get up to give a health talk between the Sabbath school and church service, most people would just get up and walk out. This is not uh, what we should be doing, okay? So uh, the point is, the point is here, we can't judge anyone else's diet, but God is calling us individually to make changes. I know it. He's done it for me, and he continues to do that. Now, just before some of you say, well, see, that's why I'm a vegan, Dr. DeRose. That's why I had, you know, the oatmeal and the whole grain bread for breakfast, and I just, well, you can eat too much of that, too. That's what they're pointing out here. If you overeat on carbohydrates, too much carbohydrates is also bad. So you don't have a license to eat whatever you want just because you're eating the right foods. And just because you don't have a weight problem, you can still overeat. Now look at this. If you really want to put it all together, tomorrow we're going to talk about diabetes and things that you can do to help reverse that condition and the tendency to it. Obesity and diabetes together associated with an over fourfold risk of developing Alzheimer's. Now these are, often we speak about risk, we're looking at, we call it age-matched data. So you look at people at any given age. You say, well, how can you have, you know, four times the risk? It's at any given age. You know, if you're 60 and you have diabetes and obesity, you're four times more likely to have Alzheimer's than someone who doesn't have those conditions and is of the same age. So let's talk just for a few moments about some weight control tips. For a number of years, I worked for a major medical system, and I was the uh, medical director for their weight loss program. And I became convinced that this was one of the single most powerful weight control strategies. Uh, It's articulated pretty simply here. Eating to satisfy hunger, not trying, not eating to try to satisfy appetite. You say, well, what does that mean? What does that mean in plain English? Well, what is hunger? Yeah, since I'm up front, I get to give you the definition I like. And the definition is your body's desire for food that's in keeping with physiologic need. Okay? So it's a physiologic need for food that your body senses. That's what I'm describing as hunger. Well, what then is appetite? What is appetite? Yes, appetite's a desire for food that may or may not be in keeping with your physiologic needs. So if if you get excited, you know, you went to Dr. Sorky's presentation, you come to mind, you're getting all excited about fasting, and you say, that's it. I am not going to eat for the next 36 hours. And when, um, what have we got? It brings us to Friday morning. When Friday morning rolls around, how many of you think you'll be hungry? Good chance. How many of you think you'll have a good appetite? By the way, this is good. 
Okay, it's good that you have a good appetite when you're supposed to eat. There's nothing wrong with appetite. It's a problem, though, that most of us, historically, in our culture, have not learned to differentiate between the two. And um, we can give you some tips here. Uh, If you slow your eating pace down, you're more likely to be in touch with when your hunger is satisfied. This is another rule that I sometimes give people if they're trying to work on this. I say, if it's a question whether it's hunger or appetite, then just stop eating. If you did, let's say you didn't eat enough at lunch. How many of you think there'll be another chance to eat this evening? Or if you say, well, I'm only eating twice a day, Dr. DeRose. Well, you'll have a chance tomorrow morning, okay? Here in America, it's not like if you don't get enough food, you're going you're to starve. We're not in a refugee camp where food is only coming once a week, Right? Now, some of you say, if there's a question, then quit. Say, I'm not that brave. Okay, well, then you could do the substitution test. And this is a dangerous uh, thing to talk about because my wife is here. This is a story that happened to her that illustrated this. Years before I met her, she was always very conscientious when it came to her health habits. And uh, she was eating at the home of one of her friends who had a couple of children. And uh, if you want to get the true story, you can talk with Sonia. Where is she hiding anyway? Oh, she's even raising her hand, so she'll let you know if I told it right. But she's very gracious. She usually won't interrupt me in the middle of the presentation. So she was actually eating with the, in this home, and they had had the main dish, and everyone was finished. The, the hostess, my wife had finished the meal, so had the young girl who was there, the daughter of the hostess, but the son of the hostess was still sitting there with his plate not yet clean. Now, what are you supposed to do when it's dessert time? I mean, I haven't read all those etiquette books, and I don't know if this woman had either, but she decided to serve the dessert anyway because it looked like Johnny wasn't going to you know, finish what was on his plate. So she brought out some healthy cookies. I know they were healthy because my wife wouldn't eat them if they weren't. And she brings out these healthy cookies, and she gives one to my wife. She wasn't my wife at the time. One to her daughter, and the hostess takes one for herself. But what about Johnny? He didn't get one. And what do you think he quickly said? Yeah, he let his mom know. He wanted a cookie, too. And she told him, Johnny, not until you clean your plate do you get a cookie. And there on his plate, in plain view, was a piece of celery. And Johnny said, but, but I don't have room. And he said, well, if you don't have room for the celery, then you don't have room for a cookie. He said, but, but Mommy, I don't have a long space for the celery, but, but I got a round space for the cookie. <laughs> Now, what, what he was illustrating is how appetite works. You see, hunger will eat anything that's acceptable, if you're hungry. If it's appetite, it typically calls for something specific. So if you're going up for the fourth serving of the uh, vegan lasagna, a very healthy lasagna that Joanne cooked, okay, are you, you going to have a meal for us here? No, you have samples at the next lecture? Okay. I know you've been serving samples, but it's not vegan lasagna today, is it? No? Okay. Okay, so she's made this vegan. You're coming up for the fourth serving. As you're going up for that fourth serving, it's buffet style. By the way, you're less likely to eat if you serve buffet style than if you put the food right on your table. That's another insight for you. And as you're getting up, you have a chance to think about why you're going up, and you say, is this hunger or is it appetite? Well, here's how the substitution test works. You say, well, if it's really hunger... If it's really hunger, I'd be happy with the salad. Okay, if that was all that was left, I'd have another serving of salad. Did you see? Or I'd have the, another serving of the broccoli, if that was all that was left. Right? If you were hungry. But if you say, no, I don't want the broccoli, I don't want the salad, I just want the lasagna, what is that likely to be? That's likely to be appetite. Okay? What about periodic fasting? Will that help you? Now, if you were to divide your calories equally between three meals, and I'm not saying that's the ideal program, I'm not saying there are too many people that do this, but if you were, how many meals would you have to leave out to decrease your caloric consumption by about 30%? Just one. So uh, there are people, I've met them, they say, I, uh, I don't eat one of my, those meals, and the meal that I find most people skip is breakfast. breakfast. That's right. You do not want to skip breakfast. Breakfast, a lot of research on how it improves your likelihood of living a long time. Very interesting data on this from the famous Alameda County study. By the way, just just to point it out for you, men who ate breakfast and didn't eat between meals 
had less than half the risk of death of men who skipped breakfast and snacked. So some of you are glad that you're ladies. But uh, for women as well, data in this, this is uh, 60 to 94 year, uh, years of age, uh, both genders, those who didn't eat breakfast, 50% increased risk of death compared to the regular breakfast eaters. So throughout the lifespan, very interesting actually, as we get older, if you've survived other bad habits, then some of these lifestyle habits that seem less important become more important. For example, you're as likely to die early from not exercising or from not eating breakfast as you are from smoking if you reach the age of 60. That's what some of the research indicates. Because uh, many people have already died with their heart attacks and cancers before they got to that age. But in the older population, if they've survived smoking that long, doesn't mean they still wouldn't benefit from quitting. But don't feel all smug that you don't smoke if you're not having a good breakfast and exercising regularly. So um, this is uh, just that very same point I just made for you. Okay, let's talk about a few more things as we're finishing up, things that can help you optimize BDNF. Regular physical exercise. So exercise comes up in every discussion, whether we're talking about diabetes prevention, heart disease prevention, cancer prevention. It's on the list when it comes to improving mental performance. And what we know is regular exercise, very important for maintaining cognitive function. If the brain has been injured, exercise is very important in restoring the brain back to a normal level of health. And exercise, we know by actual experimental data in both humans and animals, raises BDNF levels. So make exercise a regular part of your routine, and I recommend a daily exercise program. Daily exercise program. And there's more research in the, uh, in the DVD. Here's an especially interesting one, though, that I will share with you. The stress hormones. We're talking about the hippocampus and how important that is for mental functioning, especially memory. When your stress hormone levels go up, they actually harm the hippocampus. And one of the things that exercise does is it helps to modulate or lower stress hormone levels. So one of the reasons we need physical activity is to help us deal with stress, among other things. And let's hasten on to the last one, which is environmental enrichment or stimulation, because we talked about alcohol avoidance already. Well, environmental enrichment is an interesting concept, and we know this uh, first from the animal research. If you take an animal from one of those sterile cages, you know, with the wheel and the water bottle, I know that looks extremely interesting. You'd have great fun if you were an animal in such an environment, but they really don't have all that much uh, fun with just that wheel and the you know, food dispenser and the water dispenser. And you put these animals into an enriched environment, a natural environment, and what happens? Their BDNF levels go up. And so when you go into a more complex environment, it's true in humans as well, things that challenge you, that stress your brain in some ways, actually improve your BDNF levels. And it's interesting, the more education you get, the less risk you have of Alzheimer's. Now, I wish I could tell you that there is definite proof that coming to camp meeting lectures decreases the risk of cognitive decline. But I think we can make that extrapolation with, uh, with good evidentiary support, okay? So there's evidence supporting that as we challenge ourselves in these kind of environments, and by the way, you know, it may be a little less comfortable here than at your home church. I mean, maybe you have nicer pews than the chairs that we have here, and maybe you just sit by your friends, and there's someone sitting next to you who you don't even know, and they... They seem like they're a little strange, you know, they keep elbowing you, um, but whatever it might be. The point is, environmental enrichment, it starts early in life but continues throughout the lifespan. And uh, one of the things uh, that my daughter is getting very serious about, she's, uh, she seems to love her parents, but she's determined not to see us again for a number of weeks because we said goodbye to her before we came to camp meeting and she's headed to uh, uh, one of our Adventist colleges uh, abroad to better master the Spanish language. So uh, she will not be waiting for us when we get home because she'll be uh, in Spain. Well, some other ways you could challenge your brain. You could come to uh, the lecture Thursday on diabetes. You could come Friday on high blood pressure. If you can't be there, we have uh, a four-hour DVD set on diabetes. This is a three-hour series on hypertension. And I'll be honest with you, we won't be able to cram all that material into the two one-hour sessions that we have. Um, if you weren't here with us, uh, 
earlier. We actually have um, three series we've already presented or, or parts of series. We talked about infectious diseases. Uh, we've been sharing some of the healing insights from the Gospel of Mark series that we have and Longevity Plus. And uh, all these resources uh, are half price at the ABC or in back. The only thing we can't give you that good a deal on is the, uh, is the hypertension. When Amazing Facts produces that, it's still, uh, uh, still reduced quite a bit, but since we don't make them, we can't give you quite as good a pricing on that. And then we've got some other series that we won't be touching on. Uh, some of you were asking about, uh, actually someone at lunch today was talking with me about reaching people of other cultures. That's this Ancient Secrets Modern Health series. We recommend showing it with the listening to the Buffalo uh, videos. Basically, these uh, look at uh, different uh, cross-cultural traditions in health. And the last video that we recommend you show, it's the third, uh, third hour. There's three hours between the two is actually um, where we look at Middle Eastern spiritual traditions and we look at the earliest um, known clinical study. Do any of you know where that was found? That's right, Daniel chapter 1. So it's actually, uh, we look at Daniel chapter 1 and the health-giving benefits. So those are some other ways to improve your uh, level. Some of you think I'm just trying to sell you DVDs, so I want to let you know I'm not doing that. We've got free materials for you as well. This is my website, compasshealth.net. How can you remember that if you don't have a pen and, pen and paper? <laughs> Compass gives you direction, right? We're speaking about health. And why is it .net? God wants to make us fishers of men, right? Okay, compasshealth.net. And you can go right here, go to our website, free materials. We've got a lot of free handouts. And uh, you can go there. In fact, we have a whole, something like 100 pages that are study guides that go along with the Gospel of Mark series. If you don't want to buy the DVD series, you can get the notes for free right there on the website. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.